Let us look at John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. And God's inspired and inerrant word reads, After these things, Jesus manifested Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And He manifested Himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of His disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? Do you? You do not have any fish, do you? Excuse me. And they answered him, No. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. And so they cast and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and the fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish. 153. And although, although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread, gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Now this is the third time that Jesus manifested himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Father, we would just ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now as we uh, look at this story, look at this account that John dutifully, by the inspiration of your spirit, recorded for us. Father, I pray that your spirit would just illuminate this text for us, that your spirit would open our minds, that your spirit would take words that you have so orchestrated and take them from our ears and place them into our hearts and in our minds. Father, our desire is to hear from you. Father, speak to us. We are listening. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Fulfill your mission. In the late 18th century, William Carey preached what would ultimately be an incredibly influential sermon in which he challenged his hearers to expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. The purpose of Carey's challenge was to stimulate the church from its complacency. As Carey saw it, the fact that Christians were not attempting great things for God showed that they were not expecting God to do great things in and through them. Carey said that you may know that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, but you are obviously not expecting that God will actually do it. Their lack of actions showed 
that they believed they were living in a day of small things. And that is why Carrie's sermon challenged them to think bigger and to expect more from God. He knew that if and when they did, they would begin to step out in faith and take risks for Christ. Many speak words of desire to have the courage of Peter to step out of the boat, step out in faith, but few are willing to do it unconditionally. And so now this morning, as we bring our time in the Gospel of John to a close, our focus this Sunday and next will be to fulfill your mission. Your mission individually and our mission corporately. As you have heard me say many times, God has saved you on purpose and for a purpose. Sometimes we can lose sight of our purpose or, or try to move beyond our purpose. Paul wrote to Timothy, but you, Timothy, be sober-minded in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus that the work of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Paul toward Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you fulfill it. And Jesus told the disciples, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus left these words with his disciples at his ascension. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And in Luke, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for him. I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. And so today, in these 14 verses, as we start the discussion of fulfill your mission, we will hear the question. We will see the authority. We will see the power. And then we will close with receiving the invitation. So this is where we're going to go today. The question, the authority, the power, and then lastly, the invitation. The question, we see the question in the first five verses. The first five verses, the question comes in the fifth verse. Children, you do not have any fish, do you? But John starts out this last section as he has many times with after these things. In fact, six times in the Gospel of John, he writes those exact words, after these things. John is very detailed in how he's telling this story. He is telling it on purpose and for a purpose. And he's very detailed. In fact, he closes this particular section here today in verse 14. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. John takes throughout his whole gospel, he takes these sections, these units of thought, if you will. There is a clear beginning and there is a clear ending in that. John is writing clearly and for a reason. John is on mission and on purpose in why he is writing this gospel. In fact, let me once again remind you why John is writing this gospel. In John chapter 21, verse 25, the very last verse in the Gospel of John, he says this, he says, and there are also 
many things which Jesus did, which if he were written in detail, I suppose, he says, that even the world itself would not contain the books that are written there. John is saying, listen, I could go on and on and on and continue to record accounts for you, but as we've seen last week, the purpose statement, the thesis statement for the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is why John is writing this particular gospel here. And he's been very purposeful in how he is writing this. So, back to our text that we're, we're going to uh, wrestle with here today. In verse 3, the disciple, or Peter specifically, Peter says, I am going fishing. Jesus is not with us at the moment. Jesus rose from the dead. We saw him die. We've seen him after his resurrection. He seems to come and go. I am going fishing, is what he has to say. Now, many have given Peter a hard time about this statement, about this, about what he has done. And I think we're being unfair with Peter. I don't think Peter is, 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 um, is shrinking back from the mission that God has given Peter. I don't think that at all. I don't think that Peter is being unfaithful. I don't think that Peter has lost his direction. I don't think that Peter has given up on God. Rather, I would like to think that Peter is just saying, might as well be productive. <laughs> we might as well do something as Jesus shows up and goes back and shows up and goes back. Might as well do something. And what Peter knew how to do well, until this evening, <laughs> what he knew how to do well was fish. That's how he made his living throughout the gospel or throughout his life before Jesus. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing, Paul says, to work, then that person shouldn't eat either. And so we could say that, that Peter is being faithful with his time. And so I certainly am uh, not going to spend a lot of time on a lot of, and, and speculate a lot on why Peter said, I went fish, I'm going to go fishing. But I, I think we would do, we would be incorrect if we said that Peter was walking away or Peter was giving up on Jesus or giving up on his mission. But it does tell us in verse three that they caught nothing. They caught nothing at all. Nothing was there. They went fishing. That's what they knew how to do. They might as well be productive and they caught nothing. Verse four tells us that when it was day was breaking. So obviously they fished all night and caught absolutely nothing. And then in verse 5 is where we want to pick up the story because this is where we see the question. As Jesus shows up, as Jesus shows up and says, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no, no. Children. Again, some want to be a bit critical by Jesus' use of this term, children. Some want to say that Jesus was being demeaning, demeaning to the disciples. Why are you acting like children? Why are you being childish? Why are you so quickly giving up the mission that I have asked you to undertake? But I think that is an incorrect perspective. I don't think that's the right perspective at all. I heard one pastor uh, uh, 
waxed eloquently on this reason as to why Jesus is speaking this way to the disciples using the term children. But since we interpret Scripture with Scripture, I do want to go to 1 John chapter 2. John wrote the Gospel. John also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And in 1st John chapter 2, verse 18, John uses this same exact Greek term translated here as children again. Where he says this, he says, children, it is now the last hour. And he's telling them that the that you've heard the Antichrist is coming, but I'm telling you many Antichrists have already come and are already here. He's saying children. A chapter later, he says, little children, make, so, make sure that no one deceives you. Again, he's not saying it in such a way that he's being demeaning. Rather, children, if you were going to go to just any old Greek lexicon and open it up, this is what it would tell you. The way that it's used, that one who is treasured in a way a parent treasures a child. This is how the word is being used. It's a, a form of familiar address on the part of respected persons who feels himself on terms of fatherly intimacy with those whom he addresses. Coming right out of Bedag. That's how they define this particular term. And so when we see it in that sense, we don't see Jesus as chastising them, calling them children, calling them faithless or, or calling them acting childish. Rather, we can see the heart of Jesus as He's again coming along His disciples. Were they going to continue fishing? Were they going to continue pick up the, the career that they had prior to Jesus? We don't necessarily know. But we certainly see Jesus coming along as a fatherly person, as a person of encouragement, not demeaning them by calling them children, little children, childish. In that culture and in that context, Jesus is very much being compassionate with them. In essence, he's asking them, what are you doing? He's saying, what are you, what are you doing out there fishing? There's an overused cliche, but it is a good one. It is often said, and it's chalked up to Albert Einstein, but many would dispute that Albert Einstein said it, but nonetheless... It is often said that the definition of insanity, and you can finish it, right? Is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. It's a cliche that's used over and over and over again, expecting different results. Well, I don't know how helpful it is to tell you the definition of insanity, but nonetheless, I was reminded of it here this morning as I think about Peter specifically and, and thinking about the disciples specifically and thinking about your mission. And so I, I, I was reminded, uh, I was reminded in this sense of, of, of what we do, right? And how we can get into these ruts and these structures and, and this being October and or September. But the weather is absolutely amazing, isn't it? How beautiful is this weather to wake up on those clear mornings? And it's nice and cool. It's just gorgeous. And, and so for me, for some reason this week, my mind went to the mountains of Colorado and to Elk Camp, a place I love to go in September. And I was reminded of one particular instance, the first time I ever found myself in the Rocky Mountains. And I, and I hired a guide to go elk hunting because I knew nothing about the mountains. I knew nothing about elk hunting. Still don't, actually. Uh, but nonetheless, I thought, well, the most prudent thing to do is to hire a guide to show me the ropes. That's what I did. And it was a fantastic trip. And I remember we woke up in this tent and every morning we were kind of in the bottom and the elk feed in the bottom, they go up the top. And if you know anything about the mountains, you got the thermals as the air warms, it goes up too. And every morning we started at the bottom of the mountain 
and we chased the elk up the mountain. And of course, they would wind us because the thermals are going up. And I remember thinking one morning, it's like, this is insanity, right? We're doing the same thing every single morning and expecting different results. No, the thermals are going to continue to go up. The elk are going to continue to go up before we got daylight to shoot. This is just over and over and over again. So the one morning I, I suggested, imagine that. I hired a guy, but I'm going to tell him what to do. But nonetheless, um, uh, I, I said, hey, why don't we saddle up the horses and let's circle all the way around and get on top of them before daylight? So we got, we got about three o'clock in the morning, saddled up the horses up the mountain we rode in the dark. That was a journey all of it of its own. Not much of a horseman with branches. Anyways, it was, a, it was kind of, I know why you don't do that too often. But nonetheless, we got above the elk. And sure enough, we bugled and the elk came in. It was a magical morning. Uh, it was just, um, got in this little meadow. It's a hunting story, so I'm prolonging it. But we got in this little meadow. And I could hear the elk bugle and get closer and closer. Literally, the ground is like vibrating. And I got my bow, and I can hardly hold it still. And sure enough, he comes into the meadow about 40 yards, put, throws his head back, his horns go all the way past his rump, and he just bugles, steam coming out of his mouth. Now I'm supposed to draw my bow and shoot? <laughs> I did. I did draw my bow, and I did shoot, um, but unsuccessfully. <laughs> unsuccessfully. Um, I got it in a no man's land. Anyways, I nicked him. Anyways, that, we won't get into that, that part of the story. But, but the point of that story, besides just me reliving the experience, was this, that sometimes we need to mix it up. If you remember the point of the story, <laughs> sometimes doing something over and over and over again, because this is what we do, because this is what we're comfortable with, because this is what's most convenient, isn't the best method to use. Old patterns and habits become comfortable and the longer we do them, the harder it can be due to change. Sometimes we do need to change things up a little bit. And Peter here, being Peter, over and over again, Peter would get ahead of himself. He would get ahead of himself. And I want to also say about Peter as we continue to think about this question and then move on. Good leaders are not afraid to change it up. Even when the end result may be costly. Sometimes we need leaders who are willing to full steam ahead, right? Sometimes we need leaders who aren't afraid of failure. Sometimes we need leaders who aren't afraid of running into a block wall, right? Sometimes we need leaders who aren't afraid to mix things up a little bit. And I think that's Peter. I think Peter was such a guy. Now you can say, well, he acted and then he thought. Fair enough. But I think sometimes we need leaders such as that and that was Peter. That was Peter. Why do we look to Peter so often for our stories? Because we can see so much of ourselves in Peter. As God asked the question, asked us the question, what are you doing? What am I doing? What are we doing as a church? Not only do we need leaders like Peter, we need a sidekick like John. In the seventh chapter, we will see that John was the thoughtful one. Peter was a man of action, and, and boy, he would throw things out, and he would go full steam in, and John was more the one, hey, let's think this through a little bit. Let's give this some thought. Let's walk alongside you. Okay, Peter, I see your energies, I see your passions, but let's think through this thing a little bit. That was John. You need them both. You need multiple types of personalities within the church, within the family, with any organization. You need multiple personalities. We need people like Peter who throw caution to the wind on occasion. And we need people like John who can give some thought 
give some, let's think this through. Come up with a good plan. We need them both. But nonetheless, the question is before each and every one of those types of people and those personalities and your own personality. Again, coming back home, come back in. Let's come back home a little bit. What are you doing? What are we doing? What am I doing as we think about your mission? It's the question. That's the question, and it's a, it's a good one. Now, let's see the authority. See the authority in verses 6 through 8. You know, it's kind of interesting as we look at the authority and transition to the authority in verses 6 through 8. It says that they didn't recognize Jesus. And Jesus told them, hey, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. And so they did. Why? You don't even know the guy. You've been fishing all night long. You don't even know if the guy's a fisherman. For all you know, he's not a waterman, but a chicken farmer, right? <laughs> what, what does he know about fishing? What does he? And yet they do. I, I, I'm just leaving it there. I, I don't understand. I, I found it somewhat interesting. So they listen to him and they catch a bunch of fish. Again, as you think about why is John writing this story and how John ties everything together. This should be deja vu for the disciples. They just went through this before. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, when Jesus is first calling his disciples. Now it happened like this, as, as John or as Luke here records this. He said, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by a lake, this very lake. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into the boat, which was Simon's, Peter's. His Jewish name is Simon. Got in the boat, Simon Peter's boat, and asked him to be put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and he began teaching to the people. And when he was speaking, he said to Simon, hey, put out your nets. Well, he just got done washing them. Put them back out. Put them back out. And they catch this huge haul of fish. You're familiar with the story, right? They catch this huge haul of fish so large that the nets begin to break, but they don't break. But they're at that point, they get their buddies to help them and they pull them in. And Jesus tells them what in verse 10? Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Simon, you've got a new mission. You've got a new purpose. No longer are you going to be the fisherman. You're now going to be a fisher of men. You're not going to be out here floating around on the lake catching fish, but you're going to be a fisher of men. And what I want to offer to you this morning as we think about your mission is number one, there is the question, what are you doing? Number two, the authority comes from God and God alone. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for, guard for the connecting word, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus again reminds them, listen, you want to go back to fishing? Go ahead. But you're not very good at it. You can do nothing. You can't even catch fish without me. Verse 8, they dragging the net into the land after Peter bailed out of the boat. And the net was full, full of fish. That's the result. All authority comes from God. All authority comes from God. The fish listen. And so does the power. All power comes from God. Third point, the power. We see it in verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11, as they come onto the shore, they see a charcoal fire. 
again, as we think about going forward next week, what must have this triggered in the mind of Peter? One of the last times he's seen Jesus, he was also standing around a charcoal fire warming himself as Jesus went off to trial, as Jesus went off to court, as Jesus went off to be tried. Peter hung around the fire, around this charcoal fire. I don't know if, if that was the purpose of it. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not. But it's a neat thought to think. And there was some fish. Actually, it's singular in the Greek. Fish and bread is in the singular, so we must think of it as just, just a one serving of bread, one serving of fish. And yet, he passed it out to them. Again, as they seen the multiplication, the miracle of multiplication of the fish and the bread, all these things must have been going through their mind. And he says, hey, you know, bring some fish that you just caught. Who caught? Did they really catch the fish? No, they, they didn't, but nonetheless. And John records for us in verse 11, it was just a few fish, 153. John is very detailed, and it was fun. Well, it's kind of painful, actually, uh, those who want to get caught up in numerical stuff. But they, they, the interesting is they try to make connections of these 153, and there really isn't a, a connection to be had there. It's just part of the detail. It just shows that the details that John is bringing to this text. And then in verse 11, here's where we see the power. Here's where I'm getting the power from. The net was not torn. Just like the last time, right? When they were out on the Sea of Galilee, this very same sea, and they caught those fish to begin their ministry, to begin their calling to God. And now as Jesus is going to be ascending to the Father, completely turning the ministry over to them, if you will, and He's ending it the same exact way. The net was not torn. Well, this is the power of Jesus. How can we not see the providence of God. How can we not see the perseverance of the saints wrapped up within this story? Jesus keeps what He catches. The net wasn't torn. The net wasn't broke. Although He's saying it should have certainly been broke. How can we not see the sovereignty of God at work here? In John chapter 6, verse 37, the one who comes to Me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. It's the song that we just sang. To, 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 uh, I'm not sure which one it was. One of the songs we sang. To that which I have committed to Him against that day. Over and over and over again. Our hymns are written beautifully with these words of affirmation of this very fact. All authority comes from Jesus. All power comes from Jesus. And Jesus will keep what is committed to Him against that day. In John chapter 6, verse 39, this is the will of the One who sent Me that all that He has given me, I lose nothing. I'm not going to lose a single one of those fish out of that net. I'm not going to lose a single person that comes to me. And if you remember a few chapters ago in John chapter 17, verse 12, where Jesus prayed on behalf of the disciples. He said, Father, while I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name, which You have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished. Not one of them perished. And so I would like for you to see there the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the perseverance of the saints. And it is now this sovereign God who gives the invitation. In verses 12 through 14, we see the invitation. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. 
Although things have drastically changed since the death and resurrection of Jesus, one thing remains constant. Jesus provides, right? Come and have breakfast. What a discouraging day that must have been or night that must have been for the disciples. And Jesus offers the invitation to come. To come. None of the disciples ventured to question him, though. Who are you? Because they already knew it was the Lord. The word ventured, it, it, it's, it's, they didn't have the courage. That, that's what it means. They didn't have the courage to ask because they knew. They didn't have to be asked. There might have been a, a little bit of, of guilt there as they knew the mission that Jesus has given them to do. They weren't doing it. They weren't catching men, but they went back to catching fish. And yet Jesus never once discourages them, chastises them, rebukes them, in any way. And so as we think about this invitation to mission, this invitation that Jesus gives His disciples here, I want to remind you of something that I heard many, many moons ago, many years ago, as a uh, young artist was um, trying out for worship leading for actually to sign a record label. This was out in Washington State when I was still there, but he had said this. He was fired from his job as a youth director and one of the reasons was this right here. This is how he put it. Don't let your serving God is what the pastor told him. Don't let your serving God get in your way of knowing God. Sometimes our mission can overtake our knowing God. Sometimes the mission that God has given us, the passion that He has given you, the passion that He has given you, the desire that He has for us to fulfill His mission can overtake, overshadow us individually knowing God. First and foremost, our mission, our concern, our desire, our passion must be to know God. To know God. Do you know God this morning? Not about Him, but do you know Him? Do you recognize the invitation that Jesus has here extended? Come and have breakfast. It's an invitation of not just feeding, but an invitation of a relationship. Before we can think about fulfilling our mission, we must know God. Doing without keeping is empty mission. To fulfill your mission, you must know God. Mission can be hard. Mission can be difficult. Mission can be taxing. When we, when we fail to acknowledge the question, when we fail to acknowledge authority comes from God, when we fail to acknowledge all power comes from God to accomplish that mission. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, He helps relieve us of that Burden says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We must understand in this particular verse, Jesus didn't remove the yoke from you. Jesus didn't remove the burden from me but He helps us in and through that burden that He has given us. Listen, Jesus expects us to work. Jesus has given us a mission and a purpose. Jesus expects us to fulfill that. But what Jesus doesn't need, Jesus doesn't need any superheroes. He's got plenty of those. He's got one. Jesus doesn't need any superheroes. Jesus needs faithfulness. In your mission, you're not a superhero. Be faithful. Be faithful to fulfill your mission. 
Father, I pray that as we think about the mission you have given each and every one of us. And sometimes, even as your own disciples could get a bit sidetracked, veer off course just a bit, Father, you were there to lovely invite them back. Invite them back for breakfast. Invite them back to rejoin you in mission, to rejoin you in the mission that you have given them. And Father, what a timely passage for us today as we think about the business meaning of the church. Sometimes we wonder, well, how can anything spiritual come from a business meeting? But Lord, it is all part of the mission. And so I pray, Father, that first and foremost, our passion, our mission, is to have a more intimate knowledge of You. To have a more intimate relationship with You. And secondly, and only secondly, Father, would You help us in the mission You have given us individually and corporately. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.